What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host Curtis on the other end of the line here. And up today on the show is part two of the July listener mailbag. Uh, part one earlier in the week was an all-recruiting edition of the mailbag show. Got a ton of recruiting questions. This is the time of year where a lot of things are going down on the recruiting front, so it made sense. Got a lot of questions on the recruiting front, so we thought we'd do a do an entire show uh, with a recruiting focus, but today is going to be all team focused, all team related questions with fall camp just a few short days away. Can't freaking wait. It cannot get here fast enough. It's just around the corner, but it's one of those so close but so far away scenarios. But first, before we get into all your questions, we do want to quickly remind you that if you are so inclined, you can follow us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Glory UGA Podcast Facebook page. We actually got quite a few questions for this month's mailbag via Facebook. So check us out there. Like us. Interact with us on any of those platforms um, or any of those social media platforms, I should say. You can also listen to the show on a variety of podcasting platforms. Uh, obviously, you can check us out on Dog Sports Radio, where we started a couple of years back. Uh, but now we've expanded to iTunes, SoundCloud, the Stitcher, TuneIn apps, all those podcasting platforms. So whatever suits you best, check us out on any of those. Uh, and you can subscribe, uh, like, share our show. That would be awesome. Um, we definitely appreciate any help you guys give us spreading the word about the show as the season gets closer. So if you like it, if you like what you hear, tell your friends, tell your family to check out our show. Uh, but let's go ahead and move into the July mailbag here. Wrap it up here. Um, and we got quite a few questions to roll through here. Actually, I think we got more questions this month than we have on any other single month. So it's good stuff. Makes sense with the season right around the corner. But let's, uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into this. And we're going to start with John on Facebook sent us a good question. So thanks, John. Appreciate it, man. Uh, and he says, realistically, realistically in all caps, what are your expe- expectations for improvement on the offensive line, wide receiver play, and DB play? So a multifaceted question there from John. Appreciate it again, John. So, Kurt, let's uh, let's start with the offensive line. Uh, and I think what he put in all caps, I mean, I understand. It makes sense. Let's be realistic here. Let's try to... Look at this as objectively as possible. Obviously, we're Georgia guys. Let's be as, as objective about this as we possibly can. When you're looking at our offensive line coming into the 2017 season, what are your expectations? Are we going to see improvement? And if so, how much? Um, I think we are going to see improvement. I think the biggest thing that's going to see improvement is that I think uh, we're kind of building an offensive line more of like what our coaches want. I think we're going to get some players in there, especially like Kublana, you know, the guy played hard, but he just wasn't, he just physically could not perform at the center position. Um, he was outmanned and out, you know, he was at, it, he just had trouble. And then I think we all know about it, but it's been well, well chronicled, but the problems of Greg Pike at right tackle, you know, more of a natural guard. Right. Um, and I, things like that, that you're going to see players in a better position to be successful this year because last year we were just desperate to, you know, kind of put some bodies in certain positions because we didn't have much depth. Virtually no depth. You're right. Uh, so in, I'm going to go back to one of the first things you said there. You said we have guys, I think you, have, you said we had guys that more fit what we're looking for right now. What does that mean to you? Uh, more of like a bigger body than longer, that way more. Um, you know, last year, one of the biggest problems is we had guys that just couldn't, you know, their weight wasn't where it needed to be. I mean, I mean, Isaiah Wynn's still going to have a little bit of trouble because last year you'd see on even like two or three step drops, he was in the backfield. You saw it out of uh, 
Brandon Kublana, who couldn't really create much space down there. He's slow off the ball, and he was just getting pushed back. Um, and that's why I think Gilliard... He just simply be... wasn't big enough. That's the bottom line. He exactly, and I think that's why Gilliard's a little bit better of that size. I mean, last year, guard moving in down center. Um, he's got the size to do that, and I think we all know about Pike at right tackle. Um, you know, just wasn't didn't have the arm length and everything to reach to really truly play tackle. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked about this quite a bit over the past year or so in regards to the offensive line. And you're right. I, we didn't have – it wasn't a scheme fit. The guys that we had were not a scheme fit. I mean, I, I think that Greg Pike was a scheme fit at guard, not at tackle. Um, when you've got Tyler Catalina at left tackle, okay, yeah, he can, he's big. He's got some size. He can move some people at that position. But his foot speed was just subpar. It just simply wasn't good enough, at least from what we saw last year. I know he's on the Redskins right now, so if he makes the team, good luck. I hope he does. Uh, but especially on the interior. The interior is where we were just simply too small. When you had, of course, like you mentioned, Brandon Cablano. Uh, Isaiah Wynn, I think, has a lot of attributes that make him a, a solid offensive lineman, but he's just not big enough to play on the interior. And he's To me, and we've said this before, I think Isaiah Wynn's a classic center body type, but they tried the experiment, and it just it didn't click for him. He couldn't get the calls down, couldn't get the snaps down half the time, so it just didn't click for him. But So if he's not playing center, he's not big enough to play guard. He, he has the athleticism to play tackle, but he doesn't have the length or the size. Oh, he has gotten bigger. He has put on some weight. I saw him recently up here in Athens again, and he does look really good. He's put on a lot of weight, good weight. He's much bigger than he ever has been. And he had Galliard, who was solid at times, but also somewhat undersized there. I mean, one of the biggest problems last year was, he mentioned Cablano, our guards had to help him so much at the center position to hold his ground that our, our guards could not work up to the second level enough. And that's why we were just, we, we were getting killed. The, the linebackers were running free. I mean, look at Vanderbilt. Zach Cunningham was just running free almost play after play because we had to help Cablano so consistently at the center position. Um, when I'm answering this question, what are my expectations for the improvement on the offensive line this year? For me, it comes down to this. It depends on what you value more. Do you value experience or do you value size and scheme fit more on the offensive line? Because with the loss of three starters and the influx of four true freshmen and a JUCO, and also we got a, a bevy of other young players uh, like Ben Cleveland, uh, Solomon Kinley, even Pat Allen. I mean, these guys have seen virtually no playing time. We're talking about zero snaps. So we're clearly going to be lacking in experience, although we do have Isaiah Wynn returning. He's been uh, almost a four-year starter, three-and-a-half-year starter. But outside of him, uh, I know Gellier started all of last year, but we very easily could end up with up to three stars on the offensive line entering the season that have played zero snaps. That's a very real possibility. So on the experience front, it's hard to say, yep, we're going to be better because we lost three senior starters. But on the other hand, those young guys who don't have much experience, they like you mentioned, they're bigger. They're much more of a fit for the offensive identity that we seemingly want to create. So for you, Kurt, which way do you lean? Are is experience on the offensive line more important than size and scheme fit? Which way do you Right now, I think it is because I, I, you know, I've said this quite a bit, but we made, a, you know, it was actually our seniors last year who made a, quite a few mistakes, such as Greg Pike and people like that, jumping off sides, holding calls, and bad snaps, which you don't expect from the upperclassmen. So I don't know how much we truly gained. From so, so the experience is outweighed in your mind by being a guy who's got the size and scheme fit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Experience is good. Look, guys, you want to have experience if in an ideal situation. Of course you do. But you're right. We saw it last year. We had experienced guys who did not get the job done. We were losing three senior starters, and our offensive line was as bad as it's been in a decade. 
They didn't get the job done. So it didn't help last year. So let's try to get some young guys. And they're going to make mistakes. They're not going to be perfect. It's going to be a work in progress. Of course it is. But at least when they get it right, they'll hopefully be able to execute what we want to be offensively. So I, I think there will be some improvement. There's going to be some bumps on the way. It might not look pretty running the football right off the bat. As we try to work some of these younger guys into the, in the lineup, it would be interesting to see how we do that. But I think by the time we reach midseason, I think our offensive line will we'll see some. I think we'll see some noticeable improvement as the season wears on. Might not be right away, but I think we will eventually. Uh, all right, let's move on here real quick. Uh, second, second part of the question here was wide receiver play. So, what are your expectations for improvement in our wide receiver play? Um, I think we have a little bit more depth, and at that same time, I also believe that we ha- with a little bit more depth that we have to position where we can honestly hold players accountable. I mean, last year we were forced to play people like Chibu and Stanley and stuff, even though they weren't making catches because we didn't really have anyone else. And then at the same time, we had to almost, it was obvious when we were going to pass and we were going to run because we had to bring in certain guys that could run block and certain guys that could receive. I think this year we have a little bit more guys that are versatile. Yeah, when Terry Godwin was in there, chances are it was not going to be a run the majority of the time. And Isaiah McKenzie, the same thing, majority of the time. You're exactly right. So I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, I like our depth this year. I'm thinking about last year outside of McKenzie, we had a we had a group of very underwhelming upperclassmen uh, and then combined with talented underclassmen, but those underclassmen were not quite ready for prime time yet. I mean, Riley Ridley had his moments. You know, He had the touchdown catch against Tennessee that should have won the game, had the, the one-handed catch. Uh, what was that game? Uh, was that the Auburn game? Yeah, the one-handed juggling catch on the sideline against Auburn. Uh, but he only he had less than twenty catches on the year. He, he missed a he had a, a hand injury early in the season, so he missed some time. And even when he when he started making plays, he was inconsistent. So his playing time was inconsistent because he wasn't consistently earning it at practice. He had Javon Wims, who almost didn't play. He played sparingly the first half of the season. Then was a starter for the second half of the season. He had Chigbu in there. But, uh, you know, I know Chick does he does things the right way. The coach can count on but he's not a playmaker. But we had some young guys that could make some plays, but they, they just they weren't quite ready for prime time. I think they will be this year, at least enough of them. Uh, I mean, we got guys – I think Javon Wims is going to be a guy that can be a consistent threat for us. I think Riley Ridley is going to be a consistent threat for us on the outside. They're similar body types. I think Jeremiah Holloman has the, the potential to be a – First team All SEC wide receiver, not as a true freshman, but down the road, I think he has that potential. I think he's going to make some plays for us this year. I, I see him playing quite a bit. Then you got Terry Godwin, who I think is prime for a big year uh, in the slot because that's where he needs to play. We said that all along. Terry's a good receiver. He's a good player. We just haven't utilized him like like he should be utilized. So I think we'll start doing that some this year. You throw in guys like Tyler Simmons, uh, and then you got Miko Harbin also with adding some depth to the equation. And all the other true freshmen outside of Holloman, you got Mark Webb. You got Trey Blunt, you got Matt Landers. We have pieces. We have actual playmakers who can do things for us on the outside. They haven't proven themselves. I I totally understand and recognize that they are unproven in entities right now. But that doesn't mean I don't think they're going to do a good job this year. I, I we all saw G Day. I had a chance. I had an opportunity to go watch the first scrimmage of the spring, and those guys are making plays. Spe- I mean, Tyler Simmons is making plays left and right. Uh, Javon Wims as well. Um, so I think we have answers there. I know they got, they, of course, I think about they're doing the field, but I'm very comfortable with where we are entering the season in terms of who we're going to have out there um, providing options for Jacob Eason in our off-passing game. All right, and let's move on. Uh, last part of question number one, DB play. What are your expectations for improvement in the defensive backfield? Um, you know, I think 
we'll see a little bit of drop off in the nickel position without Maurice Smith. But um, you know, I think one thing that really depends on is how much does Aaron Davis play. You know, he was extremely inconsistent last year. Um, that was one of my knocks on him. But and where does time, Aaron Davis play? Is he going to play safety? Is he going to play nickel? I mean, could he potentially play corner? I think he's got that versatility. So be inter- I know he's primarily a safety last year. But it'd be interesting to see what we do with some of the guys we brought in this year and where he kind of fits in that equation, if he fits in that equation. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, at the cornerback position, I think we're going to get better, but I still don't see us being locked down. We just don't have two locked down guys. I mean, Malcolm Perry, as hard as he plays, is not a locked down corner. He's just physically, you know, strained. He, I think he's got great speed. He's got a great vertical jump, but when you're like 5'8", five, 5'9", uh, you're fighting an uphill battle. I, I still say Malcolm Parrish is the best pure tackler on the football team. Uh, he's, but you're right, he's vertically challenged, and that creates an issue when we're facing bigger receivers like we were against Ole Miss and Missouri last year when they ate us alive in the passing game. It's a problem. You can be in perfect position, but if they outjump you and they're just bigger than you, it's tough. It's tough even if you're right there in his hip pocket. I think here's my thing about the DBs. Here, we, we essentially have everybody returning outside of Mo Smith. I potentially like the talent that could fill in for Mo Smith better than Mo Smith, but he was so valuable as a leader, as a guy who knew this system. He'd been in the system for five years, understood what Kirby wanted, understood the expectations. Um, was a guy out there that was literally, I mean, I know it's such a cliche, but it's true, a coach on the field that Kirby could count on. There's a reason Kirby went all out to pull Mo Smith away from Alabama and dare to threaten the supremacy of Nick Saban. Because uh, we need a guy like that to kind of bridge the gap. But is, let's say a guy like D'Angelo Gibbs. Is it a stretch to say if D'Angelo Gibbs somehow ends up winning that job, that nickel job, is it a stretch to say he's more talented than Mo Smith? Um, I think he may have actually more attributes than Mo Smith. I think he's a better player than Mo. I, I think he has more talent. Whether he proves to be as good for us or as productive as Mo Smith was last year, that remains to be seen. Probably won't be as productive in year one. I think down the road he will be. Uh, but he doesn't have the experience. But one thing I really like about our DBs, I know outside Mo Smith, everybody's coming back. We all, But we didn't have a ton of quality depth last year. We had no cornerback depth at all. Zero depth. And with Jawan Briscoe gone, I mean, that we were even short, especially during spring practice. But now we've got an influx of young guys who are highly recruiting. Of course, you've got the headliners and D'Angelo Gibbs and Richard LeCount who are here for the spring as early enrollees. We've got a host of cornerback recruits. Some guys who could also cross-train and play safety. Um, you got guys like uh, Amir Speed, Eric Stokes, Latavius uh, Brini. you got those guys. And Trey Bishop, obviously. Trey Bishop is a guy who can play corner or something. It's going to be very interesting to see where he ends up. But he's, he's a... God, he's a crazy good athlete. We have guys that can do things for us behind the stars. We have enough guys have a quality too deep this year, whereas I don't know if that was the case last year. So I think there will be some improvement just based on that alone. And the guys that were starters last year, they've been in the system a while now. This is year two. They should be more experienced. They should be ready to, to up their game at least a little bit this year. So I, I know it probably sounds like a homer, but I think we it's reasonable to expect improvement on the offensive line at wide receiver and in the defensive backfield. Maybe – at least marginal improvement. And I think in some at wide receiver, I think we just could see significant improvement this year. Offensive line, I'm not expecting a huge jump. Um, but I think there's going to be some improvement there just based, like you said, on the fact that these guys are more of a scheme fit. In DB play, I, I, I think we're going to be better. I, I do. I think we have more players. We have more talent. And guys that were here last year, you're older and you're um, more familiar with the system. All right, 
let's move on to question number two. And this is a great question. Um, I've had a couple conversations with this guy on Twitter about this, but he, I, he, uh, he sent this in for the mailbag this week and wanted to bring it up on the show. So, Kurt, I'm going to let you take it first, and then I'm going to take my stab at it. But this is from A. Harding 1993 on Twitter. Appreciate the question, buddy. And he says, or asks, will the implementation of RPO concepts help evolve our offense with an offensive line that probably will struggle early on? All right, Kerm, I'll let you take that first, and I'll take a stab at it. Um, I think it does, because anything like that causes a pause um, in, with the defense. I mean, you can't just, you know, full all-out blitz or read something yep. like we have. I mean, it just causes the blitz to happen. It's another, it's another thing for the defense to have to think about. So I think it does at some point help our offense at least create some type of, you know, mystery. Not It's more so just, you know, something else to think about. Absolutely. And I'm going to take the floor here for a second because I love the X's and O's of football. I, I am very nerdy about that. Um, I read up on this stuff constantly. I'm a former football coach myself. Don't do it anymore. Um, but I love this stuff. So I'm going to take a stab at it here. And so forgive me if I'm a little long-winded. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. I'm not going to go – because the RPOs, one thing you have to understand, guys, there are an infinite number of per- permutations of RPOs. There's a bunch of different kinds and various systems. So I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible and as brief as possible. But I do want to answer – uh, the question here, because I think it's a good question. I think we're going to see a lot of this issue based on what I saw um, in the spring scrimmage, at least I'll say that. Uh, but at their core, you have to understand that RPOs at their core are all about making defenses pay for the choices they make and how they ultimately choose to deploy the resources they have to attack offenses, the 11 defenders that they have. And on your average play, okay, there's 16 gaps. I don't want to get too technical here, but there's 16 gaps uh, and coverage zones for defenses to account for on any given play. There's eight run gaps and eight passing zones on your average play. There can be more, it can be less, but on your average play, we'll go with 16. Um, and there's, there's eight passing zones because so there's three deep zones and five underneath low zones. Uh, but defense, the thing is, defenses only have, obviously, 11 defenders. So, therefore, defenders with our defenses with 11 defenders trying to cover 16 gaps and zones are forced to make choices and choose what they're going to take away from an offense. Now let's bring us into the equation here. Last year against us, what did defenses do, Kurt? How did they attack us? They stacked the boxes. They stacked the box. If you're looking at Georgia's offense from 2016 and your defense coordinator, you're game planning for it, you're, you're asking yourself, okay, how do I deploy my resources, my 11 defenders? You're going to say, I'm going to stack the box and make them beat us with the pass. That's what they did. I mean, we had a combination, it, it was just, we had this combination of a strong stable of running backs, a freshman quarterback, a dearth of wide receivers that were truly ready to be playmakers on the edge. So all those defenses said, yep. Let's attack the Georgia offense by applying extra downhill defenders near line of scrimmage to slow down the running game and force us to beat them with what was, I mean, we all know, it was a highly deficient passing game. And we couldn't do it, at least not consistently. And then you add into that equation a subpar offensive line that didn't have the requisite size to run the type of scheme we really wanted to, at least looking at what we came out in initially against North Carolina in the Dome, and defeat those loaded boxes when they did load the box. And you have a recipe for disaster that by now we're all far too familiar with. We all know what happened last year offensively. So let's fast forward to this year. So looking at the disaster from last year, Jim Chaney and the offensive staff, they were charged by Kirby Smart to figure out a way to jumpstart what was clearly an underperforming 2016 offensive unit. And specifically, you heard Kirby say this as as Media Days. They were directed by Kirby himself to find, quote, creative ways to run it. That was the quote Kirby was throwing out left and right at SEC Media Days on interviews he was doing on Radio Row and so on and so forth. So he's like, all right, guys, we got to get creative to run the ball. We couldn't run the ball if we wanted to last year. Let's get creative. So 
Where do RPOs factor into all this? Here's where they factor in. In any defensive scheme or call, a defense has three types of defenders. This is basic stuff. You have a box defender that's designed, that's basically deployed to defend the run. You have pass defenders, and then you have what we call dual players that have both uh, run fit responsibilities and coverage responsibilities. Typically, those are your linebackers and strong safeties as well. Um, so with RPOs, it is the latter type of defender, those dual players that have run fit and cover responsibilities that are being targeted. So the offense, essentially with an RPO, is going to come to the line of scrimmage with multiple choices. The line's going to, the line will always block run because you're assuming it's, the line has to assume it's going to be a run play. But the quarterback, here's where it gets crazy. The quarterback, after reading the defense, has the option to either pull the ball or to, to hand the ball off or pull it and throw a pass. And so what you're doing, what you're doing in effect with an RPO is you're isolating one of those dual defenders and forcing them to pick their poison. Old cliche, but it's true. You're picking your poison there. You put that defender in what is called classic conflict. Um, so if, if, the, if that defender that you're targeting, if he reads run, which he will almost certainly do after seeing the offensive line fire off the ball blocking run, he's going to attack downhill. Wherein the quarterback simply, when he sees that, is going to read that, pull the ball, and fire a pass into the vacated coverage area that that could conflicted defender is responsible for. There's no one there. And then vice versa. If the defender gets wise to what's going on with the RPOs and decides to drop into his coverage zone instead of attack the run, well, that's great. That removes the defender from the box without having to actually dedicate a blocker to him, which gives the offense the numerical advantage and creates an opportunity to run the ball with success. So really, in this, in my opinion, it's just me, in my opinion, implementing more RPOs into our offensive system, if that is indeed what we do, and I mean, we don't know that for 100% certainty. We'll find out here in short order. But if we do implement more RPOs in our system, that's our way of responding to and attempting to counteract the manner in which defenses attacked us last year by maximizing the number of defenders in the line of scrimmage to slow down our running game. They're just, I mean, last year, there's, we all know this, there simply was enough breathing room for our running game to really get going last year. And the offensive line wasn't good enough to create that space against those looks. So there is a very good chance that we're going to see that same look again this year, especially to open the season. So if that happens, it makes an infinite amount of sense to essentially, here's another cliche, take what the defense gives you. I mean, because that's going to simultaneously make the passing game more efficient, and it's also going to create more room for our running backs to run and take pressure off of a still developing offensive line. So yes, I love the question, and I think we need to, and I think we will implement more RPOs for the reason I just laid out there. So I hope that wasn't too crazy technical. I love this stuff. I know some of you might not dig it as much, but uh, man, I love the X's and O's. So I'm very interested to see if we come out throwing more of those looks at defense. I think we will. But it'll be interesting to see what we do game one. All right, so we want to question number three here. Reggie on Twitter, one of our very loyal listeners. De- Reggie, we always appreciate it, man. Reggie asks, what key stat must turn around for us to be successful this year? Kurt, what you got on that one? I think with my biggest thing, it has to be red zone defense. Damn it, dude. You stole my question. You stole my answer. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, man. Because, uh, look, I... Do you have those numbers in front of you? No. I, I got them right here, man. Like it's it's crazy bad. We we gave up touchdowns when our opponents got in the red zone. We gave up touchdowns seventy five percent of the time. Three out of every four times the opposing offenses got in the red zone against us, they were scoring touchdowns. That was dead last in the SEC. And they score, opponents scored 91% of the time when they got in the red zone, which is touchdown or field goal, which is 13th in the SEC. I mean, 
they scored t- opponents scored touchdowns 32 out of 43 times they were in the red zone against us. Now let's compare uh, and just to give you some comparison here to put that in context. For last year, they gave uh, there were 39 times that opponents got into the red zone against Florida. They only scored 18 touchdowns against Florida out of 39 opportunities. LSU, their opponents only scored eight touchdowns and 33 red zone opportunities against that defense last year. We have a ways to go. Um, and this is a critical stat. For you, Kurt, why is this such a critical stat? Um, I think it just it's a difference of being an elite defense, really. I mean, think about how many one-possession one games we had last year. I mean, we were a team that could have easily been 10-2. and two. We also could have been, what, 5-7 and seven easily. Well, those one-possession games. That variable game, if – remember, that was, it was the opening kickoff, right? They, that, yeah, if we hold them right there. If we hold, if we hold them to a field goal there or, or to a, a missed field opportunity, we win the game. We, we couldn't do it against Vanderbilt. Those kinds of things lose football games. If you hold offenses – to field goals in the red zone, you will win football games. Chances are, more often than not, you're going to be able to outscore a team that has to settle for kicking field goals if you can keep them from getting the ball in the end zone, especially when they're in the red zone. So we were just abysmal last year. If we can even get to middle of the pack this year, and you know this is going to be an emphasis for the team. You know it's been an emphasis all offseason long. I've heard Kirby say that himself. Um, it's definitely been an emphasis. So if we can get to the, at least the middle of the pack in that category – it might be good enough for another win or two itself because we lost some of those one-possession games simply because we could not stop teams' red zone. Tech, last year, right, to end the season? I didn't want to bring it up. I don't want to freaking bring it up. But to get in the red zone, I, you knew they were going to score. You knew they were going to score because we couldn't stop anybody in the red zone. If we hold teams to field goals, we win football games. So, And I know there's a lot of areas that we need to improve in. We need to run the ball. Uh with more efficiency, we we got a lot of areas to improve in special teams. We need Easton to hit more balls vertically down the field. But for me, if I had to pick one stat, it's got to be red zone touchdown percentage allowed for sure. All right, uh, and question number four. This is from William on Facebook. Uh, simple question, but I like it. Will Georgia beat Florida this year? Now, Kerr, I know we had our scout the enemy series with Florida last week, but uh, give us briefly your take on that question. Are we going to beat Florida this year? In the streak? Um, I think we are. I think the difference is, they're de- like I've said, their offense, while it's improving, it's not going to be elite like their defense was to make up for the difference. At the same time, you know, we talked about it when we were talking, like you said, we were talking about scouting the enemy, and we talked about all, you know, how few people they had returning. Well, that's changed just last week. Their, ret- their returning tackle or the defense back is now yeah. out for the season. Yeah, Marcel Harris done. So that was they're after, even, yeah. They're losing more and more experience. Now they're returning, what, Less one than, out they, of 11 I, starters, really? Yeah. I mean, or two out of eleven. They were they lost. Duke Dawson. If you if you if you if you consider a nickel package, Duke Dawson was a starter in nickel packages. Uh, CC Jefferson was a sometimes starter when he wasn't hurt. But yeah, they, I mean, they don't have a ton of guys returning. I, mean, I know they lost. They, they lost eight starters from last year's defense. They have some guys that are part time starters here and there. Some guys that started linebacker when their starters went down. But you're not really a starter. Uh, yeah, man. I, I encourage you guys to go back and check out our scouting enemy series on Florida that we. Uh, put up last week but yeah just kind of recap a couple things we said there I, I do think that we'll beat Florida this year I don't think it's a done deal I don't think, I don't think we're going to blow them out uh, I think I don't think there's a huge gap between the teams I think Florida's a very good respectable football team but one of the things that I think allowed them to have so much success slowing down our offense the past couple of years that all it, it doesn't really hurt them when we just make the most ridiculously bonehead decision in the history of the world and start for Tone Bauda uh, in his first start in the cocktail party, 
Not sure what was, still not quite sure what's going on there. So that that certainly makes it a little easier for them. But still, their DBs, their corners especially, were just simply far superior to our, our wide receivers outside of Malcolm Mitchell. Especially when you look at who we had last year, they could man up on man up on us on the outside in press coverage. We had no chance to get off of that. And they were able to load the box like pretty much everybody else did. And they were good enough up front to hold our running game in check. They had enough bodies to outnumber us because our receivers couldn't force them out of those looks. Our, our passing game just wasn't good enough. But this year, when you lose pretty much everybody in your defense in backfield, at least your primary players, Jalen Tabor, Quincy Wilson, Marcus May, now Marcel Harris as well, I just I, I know they're going to have some good players. Duke Dawson's a good player. Chauncey Gardner's a solid player. But they're just not going to have an over, overwhelming advantage against our wide receivers this year. I think our wide receivers are going to improve, and I think their DBs are going to take a step back. So I think that will help us make some more plays in the pass game, which will then, in effect, loosen up the running game and, get, and allow our offense to, to move the football on this Florida team. I really think we're going to be able to move the football. Now, I know they've been good in the past couple of years, but I just don't see this being the same Florida team. I also don't think they're going to be as dominant up the middle when you lose a guy like Caleb Brantley. You lose your two starting middle linebackers. Ah man, I just don't see they're gonna be strong up the middle. They'll be okay. They'll be pretty good, but I just don't see them being dominant there. And look at them offensively. Look, I know that we have question marks at quarterback. I, I, I want to believe Jackie Beeson is gonna be a, a much improved quarterback this year, and I think he will be. But we have questions there. You have to admit that. But yeah. at at court at their quarterback, do they not have just as many, if not more, questions at quarterback than yeah, we do? I think they have like five guys on the roster, and they have no clue who's going to do it. Like I, it, it baffles me some of these national pundits and just people, fans in general, who just are automatically assuming that Malik Zaire is going to be the answer. Guys, I threw out the stat on the on the show last week on the, on the Scotty Enemy Show about Florida. Jacob Eason, by week four, was a more experienced player as a true freshman than Malik Zaire. Is as a what as as a fourth year player now? I think he's a redshirt junior. He hasn't thrown. He's still like less than Zaire. I think it's ninety eight passes, ninety six passes, less than a hundred passes in his career to this point. Now he's been in different systems. He's been around college football. I get that. He's had coaching, college coaching for four years. But he has Jay Beeson threw more passes through his first four games than Malik Zaire, Zaire has for his entire career. I just don't see how you can say, yep, he's the answer. He's they got experience now at quarterback. What? Based on what? I just don't get that. So I think they got question marks there. Our running backs are superior. We return ten stars on defense and much more production than they do on their defensive side of the ball. So I think we're and I think we're gonna be a better defense than this year. I know people don't want to buy that. If you listen to Greg McElroy, we have no chance. But I, I just think we're gonna be the better team. Not by a wide margin, but I think we will be, and I think we're gonna win this football game. I really do. Uh, all right, let's move on to question number five. This is an email question from Nathan. Appreciate it, Nathan. Uh, and Nathan asks, given Georgia's situation on the offensive line, this is another good question, kind of an X is a no type question too. What are your thoughts on using an offensive line rotation? Couldn't this tactic be used in the same way as rotating running backs late in the game? Get some of those fr- big, fresh bodies in there late in the third quarter to push the defense around and then bring in the well-rested starters to close out the fourth quarter. So, Kurt, what's your take on that, a potential offensive oh, line I rotation? Think, I think it's a terrible idea. I'm not a fan of it because the biggest thing is, especially when it comes to offensive line, it has to be camaraderie. Um, you have to – That's the teams that are more successful have offensive lines that have stayed in place for almost the entire season or things like that where the group is played together because I don't think people realize how much communication is important when it comes to the offensive line, I mean, you got to make the calls. There's just tons of things that they have to do. And if they haven't been playing together the entire game or the entire season, then you're uh, you're in for trouble. 
You're right, man. I mean, look, we, we talk about a lot about wanting to have size, and offensive line guys that are the right kind of fit, we, and that's all true. But the most important thing on the offensive line is communication. There's so many play, there's so many calls going on up front, and when you're in a loud environment, you've got to be able to communicate silently. There's a lot that goes into that, and yes. it, that communication I mean, is so. When you have young guys in there, or if you if you're mixing and matching guys who aren't normally playing with each other, playing with a different guy next to you, one series and the next series is a different guy. It screws with chemistry. It, it, it damages the communication. It messes with the rhythm on the offensive line. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted, a, if you want an example, I mean, look at any game where a player gets hurt and the backup comes in. There's not the same type of communication. The offense isn't as gelling like it was. Yeah, and part of that's because the backup's not as good or he'll be starting. But you're right. Part oh, I mean, of that's communication. Yeah, I mean, and that's also true for us. I mean, why would we have people in there that aren't truly ready just to keep them fresh? I mean, that's yeah. also another thing. Yeah, I, I, in theory. It sounds like a great idea, like, and, and I think it can work to a degree. I here's what here's my take on this. I don't think you're ever going to see a wholesale line change like you do in hockey. You know, like where one line comes out and a new line comes in. You're just not going to see that for the reason you just mentioned. Why would you take your starters out and put in a, an entire line of backups? You're you're going to get killed. You're going to get somebody killed doing that. All right. I mean, you just, that's that's not a good plan at all. But I think it's okay if you have like a versatile sixth man, and we've had this in the past. We have like a sixth man on the offensive line that can kind of move around and spell different guys. So, you know, that sixth man, you know, he can play guard, he can play tackle. So one series he gives the right guard a breather. The next series he gives the left guard a breather. Then one series he might give the tackle a breather. You know, Dyshawn Sims kind of filled that role for us last year. And and I know that – I know. I'm not high on Dyshawn Sims. uh, But if you go back and watch the tape, he did that. You know, when, when we want to give a guy a breather, we put Sims in there. Uh, so I think that's something you could see. What about with the young guys this year? Would you would you, would you be okay with a, with a system a, a modified rotation? Kind of get some of those young guys some playing reps early in the season. Maybe early in the season, getting them some reps here and there. But at the same time, we got to have our group ready for you know. I mean, look, you're going to Notre Dame at an environment, a different environment in game two. I mean, there's got to be some you know some comfortability right there. Yeah, and I think a lot of it also comes down to. How much of a gap is there between number one, number two on the depth chart? Okay, so if you've got Dyshawn Sims, who's going to come into fall practice as number one right tackle, let's say Isaiah Wilson or Ben Cleveland, whoever it might be. Let's say that they make a big push for that job and they are just nipping on Sims's heels. If it's that close, I'm okay with, okay, you give Sims two series to start, then you bring in Cleveland or you bring in Isaiah Wilson, right? And just give him a chance to get some time in. But if there's a huge gap between the starter and the backup, why would you put them in there? Like, you're gonna, there's going to be a drop-off in play if there's a big gap. So the closer the, the, the second line is to the first line, I think you have a chance to see more of a modified-type rotation. I just don't think you're going to see a wholesale thing. I don't think Nathan was suggesting that. I do like the concept, and it, it, it totally makes sense, okay? You bring some guys in that are that are rested, they're fresh, um, they can go after those defensive line who've been going after it all game. Then you bring in the starters back in the fourth quarter. It totally makes sense. I get it. And you do that at most other positions, or especially the running back position. But uh, offensive line, it's just a different animal. The chemistry and the communication there. It's just tough to do that. It really is. Uh, all right, question number six. And this is from Terry on Facebook. Appreciate it, Terry. Uh, another simple question. I like it. Do you think we will see Elijah Holyfield play this year? What's your take, Kurt? Yeah, I think you'll definitely see him get him some reps. What's his I role going to be? Um, I see. I think he's going to battle for that third spot off the bench or the second spot off the bench behind Sony. 
Yeah, that, that number three back. So, I mean, go for that number three back. You're going to have Holyfield. You're going to have Herring, who might have a leg up just because he was that guy last year, thanks in part, large part, to Holyfield's injury late in fall camp because he was the number three back coming into uh, the season before that injury. But you're going to have Holyfield, you're going to have Herring, and you're going to have DeAndre Swift, the true freshman, coming in from Pennsylvania. Those three guys are going to be vying for that number three spot. Uh, and I think Holyfield has a – look, I, I think this is going to be a – this is one of the more intriguing battles for me because I, I know Zeus is going to be coming in. Uh, next year, but whoever is that number three back this year, it's fair to say, right, that they'll have a head up on the competition going into next year, right? Yeah. More likely than not. So I'm very interested in who wins this battle, and I don't think there's a huge gap between any of those three guys. So I could see it being Swift, it could be Holy Fuck, it could be Steve being Harriet. So I'm very interested. Um, I think we'll definitely know, I don't want to like flake out on this question, I think we'll definitely know a lot more after the open practice. I wish I could reserve my comment until then, which is just what, less than two weeks away. That is freaking awesome, too. Can't wait for that. Totally awesome thing. Um, so I want to see these three guys out there, but to answer your question right now without having seen them, I saw them in the spring. I think the answer is yes. I think Holyfield, I'm high on Elijah Holyfield. I have been since we signed him. I don't think he had a chance to really show what he was able to do last year. I think we, if he can stay healthy, Absolutely, he'll see some playing time this year. Might not. It's not going to be significant. You, you, I mean, you got Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle in the backfield. You're, none of those three guys are going to see a lot of playing time outside of, of Michelle and Chubb. But I think he'll play some. I think he'll get some carries. I think he. I think he might fit into a role like we saw for Harry in last year. All right, number seven, Dan, with an email question. And Dan asked, "Who do you see?" I think this is question number two. Dan had a question on the recruiting front from last, uh, from early in the week, but. No problem, Dan. We got you for the second question here, man. Appreciate you interacting with us. And Dan asks, who do you see returning punts and kicks for us in 2017? I'd love to see Miko Harbin taking them, but I feel like there are other options. So, Kurt, how would you tackle that one? Um, you know, I mean, I think Nicole is going to get opportunity too, but there's tons of guys out there. I mean, Terry at times can do it. I mean, you don't know how any of these freshmen can do it. I mean, look at someone like a D'Angelo Gibbs. That guy's a beast and with his ball skills, I mean, what he did at receiver and things like that. Um, And then also, if this guy that, you know, who committed to us ever shows up. Akil Crumpton. Yeah, if he shows up, he's going to get a shot. I mean, I think there's tons of Tyreek McGee. There's tons of people that can do it. Yeah. um, Even you can even see a DeAndre Swift out there. Absolutely. So, I agree with you. So, for me, I think Miko is going to be the odds-on favorite to return kicks this year because he was number two guy last year. Uh, I think he'll do a really good job. I think he'll pose much more. Whoever's back there, I, I feel comfortable saying he's going to pose more of a threat than Reggie Davis did last year. Sorry, Reggie, but I just think that's the case. Uh, I, but I, I'm with you on DeAndre Swift. I think Swift or maybe even Elijah Holyfield. Holyfield because Holyfield did line back up there a couple times. I don't think he ever actually got one to return, but he was back there a couple times. So I think Swift or Holyfield could possibly see some time back there on kicks. Punt return. Maybe me, Cole. I think Akil Crumpton is the guy that we're hoping if he gets in. I mean, that why I think that's one of the primary reasons we recruit this guy is for his uh, ability in the return game, specifically as a punt returner. Terry Godwin's been back there a couple times in the past, quite actually quite a bit in the past. So I think he's a guy that we trust back there, although he's had some adventures back there returning punts as well. Um, Tyreek McGee, you hear his name mentioned there. I think DeAndre Swift could possibly get some looks there as a punt returner too. So we've got some options. If I had to pick, I'd say Miko on kicks and Crumpton on punt returns. I think that's why we signed Crumpton. Or we're going to bring him in if he does, in fact, make it to the to the team here in the coming days and weeks. All right, question number eight. It's an email question from Jack. Appreciate it, Jack. 
And Jack asks, what are your thoughts on an 11-2 season with losses to Auburn, 28-17, and Tennessee, 31-27? Jack being very specific. Love it. Kurt, is that realistic to you? Um, it's realistic, but it's unacceptable to me. I can see an Auburn Ooh. loss, but I do not accept the third year in a row loss to Tennessee. Not this Tennessee team. I know it's on the road. I know it's on the road. And going to Neyland, is, it's, it's a tough environment. I've said that many times over the course of the summer. I've been there. I've lost count many times in a row. I've been in Tennessee when we played there. But it is a tough environment, man. It is, even when they're not good. And we've had some close calls where we should have blown them out because they weren't very good, but we yeah. barely snuck but, by. But this is going to be a bad Tennessee team. This is a bad I, – I agree with Booger McFarland. I think at SEC Media, he said they were going to be abysmal, I think is the word he used. I, I, I don't know if I would agree with uh, – that's a strong word, abysmal. But they're not going to be very good this year. I really don't think they will be. And if – we have no business losing that game. We've got to win that football game. If we want to take a step forward as a program, we cannot lose that game to Tennessee. Not to this Tennessee team. Can't happen. Auburn – Perhaps a little more understandable. Um, but do you think that's a reasonable expectation to see a season like that, 11-2 season with losses to Auburn and Tennessee? Um, I think it could be reasonable, but I don't also see uh, – I think that I think it's more reasonable with a loss to Auburn though, than the loss to Tennessee. Yeah, oh, for sure. And those are – and tell me if you disagree. Those could very well be and probably are our two toughest road tests in the year, right? Um, I mean, Notre Dame is going to be a very tough game. I, I think people are – some people are just talking it up as a win. I don't see it just talking it up as a win. Uh, but I think Tennessee, just based on the environment, ah, man, I think that might be a tougher game. Yeah, probably. It's the probably two toughest road games in all honesty. Yeah. So I think it's a very realistic possibility that that could come out, a loss to Auburn, loss to Tennessee, a close loss to Tennessee on the road. I, I hope that doesn't happen. It shouldn't happen, but it could. Especially but, with an offense like that, they shouldn't put up 31 points if they win by scoring 31 points, then your defense is in trouble. Like they have so many questions offensively, and they lost every most. They pretty much every they lost their best player on every level of defense last year. From and last they year. lost almost every playmaker offensively. Yeah. I they did lose every. I mean, who do they have returning this? A, a proven playmaker. I mean, John Kelly yeah. running back. He's okay. He did some Just decent things. One receiver. Things. That's the only playmaker they have. Really. Jennings, but do you consider Jennings a true playmaker? I mean, he's a, uh, he's a good piece. One the only one capable of doing yeah. it that's had a little bit of experience. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if Jennings can be a number one guy. I mean, he benefited a lot last year from having Josh Malone. Malone was receiving so much attention that they couldn't really pay as much attention to Jennings. He got a lot of single coverage looks and was able to take advantage of that. So I don't know if he's the guy. Is he good enough to be the guy? Maybe. But you're right. He's the only one that I, I, that we know of right now that could really be that guy. Uh, I would lean – I think it's a very realistic possibility and outlook. But I would lean towards saying we drop one of those two road games. I think we can steal one of them. Uh, and, and I mean, I think 11-2 season sounds about right, but I don't know if it's going to be Auburn and Tennessee. I don't know if those two losses will necessarily be those two teams. Uh, all right, question number nine. Ross on Facebook. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this one because it was uh, – Ross sent, uh, sent me some some uh, pictures with this and didn't necessarily have an exact question. He wanted me to use it as a topic on the show. So I'm kind of paraphrasing what he was getting at here. So we do appreciate it, Ross, and you're right, man. It's a great topic. And Ross uh, essentially was asking, can this 2017 Georgia team be like the 2008 Alabama team and make a jump from mediocrity in year one? I mean, Alabama in year one in 2007 under Saban was 6-6. Six and six. We had that Mikey Henderson catch uh, from Matthew Stafford in the end zone in overtime to win that game. So it make a jump from mediocrity in year one under a new coach to title contention in year two. Alabama obviously makes it the SEC title game, losing to Florida in 2008 after a 6-6 six and six season. 
We came off. We're coming off a seven and five season in year one. Or Kirby Smart, who is a Nick Saban disciple. Do you see a chance for us to make a similar type jump in year two under Kirby Smart as Alabama did in year two under Nick Saban? Um, I don't. I think we could be SEC title thing. I think we're just a little bit more experienced away. I think we are going to see the jump though because we're starting to get the players we want in there. I mean, like Kirby said, the very first day he got hired, we've got to get bigger on the offense. You know, at the line of scrimmage, and at the same time, we've got to get playmakers. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And you're seeing these guys come in if they just don't develop overnight. Yeah, man. Like, uh, there's some similarities, but there's also some significant, some significant differences. That Alabama team, they ran the table undefeated in the regular season. Lost to Florida in the SEC title game, then lost in the Sugar Bowl, I believe it was, to Utah. Uh, but that was a very good Alabama team. But they also had a senior quarterback in John Parker Wilson. Uh, he had some really good offensive linemen. He had Andre Smith. Yeah, they had a, quite a few experienced players that came in. I mean, you had linebackers yeah. and everything. Well, they had, they had – so, yeah, you had offensive linemen. Andre Smith, who was a first-round pick, high high pick in the first round. Anton, Anton Caldwell was a good player for them. Uh, then on the defense side of the ball, you had Rolando McClain at linebacker. And I, and Roquan Smith, I think, is going to be a star. I love him and Natrez Patrick. Do you think either one of those guys are Rolando McClain level good right now? They're not. And, and I'm talking about Roquan. I mean, you had Javier Arenas. Javier, yeah, Javier guys. Arenas as the punt returner and defense, and guy in the defensive backfield for him. Brandon Dederick on the defensive line there. Yeah, uh, Glenn Coffey. Uh, yeah, Kareem Jackson. Like so they, they had some guys, man. Like, that defense, I, I think we have some guys defensively, and I love Roquan, and I love Natrez. Those guys aren't Rolando McClain. I mean, guys, think remember back to Rolando McClain in college. I mean, I know in the NFL he's had his issues, but when he's got his head on straight and he's got a guy that like he's saving running. He was what, like a top 15 pick? Yeah, he was, he was insane. Like, he was the one that really started that chain of Alabama linebacking greats. I mean, he was just a freaking monster at that position. Brandon Denver is really good, so... I think I don't know, man. Like there was a more experienced team, at least experienced in key positions, like quarterback, and just had some downright nasty players. And I think we got some really good players. I just don't know if we're as talented as that Alabama team was, and I don't know if we're as and I don't think we're as experienced. We're still a young football team right now. I know our guys. We played a lot of young guys last year, so there some there is some experience returning, but they're still a, a young team. You got guys like Jacob Eason, Isaac Nauta, Charlie Warner, Tyler Clark. Julian Rochester. I mean, these guys are still really, really young players. And if we're going to start one, two, maybe three guys on the offensive line that are new players, that's a scary thought. And the wide receivers are going to be still be really – I mean, Javon Wims is only a second year in the system, so I, we just don't have that experience. But could it happen, though? Could we see a year like that, even though we might not have the experience, might not have some of those top-level guys that Alabama had coming into the 2008 season? Could we still see a, a, a potential 12-0 and yeah, regular season? The East isn't as strong as the West, which helps us. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I wouldn't. I'm not going to sit here and say it's likely that we're going to run the table like Alabama did in 2008. But I could definitely. I, I honestly, I expect us right now to be in Atlanta the first weekend in December, that first Saturday in December. And if we do that, going 10 and 2, 11 and 1. I mean, there's. Hey, we we that's a huge jump. It might not be a twelve and zero jump like Alabama had going from six and six to twelve and zero, but going from seven to five to eleven and one or seven and five to ten and two, that's a pretty significant jump in its own. So maybe not quite to that level, but I, I think we're in store for a jump this year similar to that. But good question, Ross. Appreciate it, man. Twitter question from Jeff is question number ten. This is the last one for today's show. Is a ten and two season a good season? Despite the circumstances, even if 
that means a loss to Florida and Auburn and losing the East again. Or another scenario, losing Notre Dame and Tennessee with the East and no chance at win the East and then but no have no chance of the playoffs. So basically, let's say is a ten and two season a good season for you? No matter no matter the circumstances. Um, I could live with it. I I I don't think this team is twelve and zero type caliber. That's a th- I mean, ten and two is a three game jump, guys. That's a pretty big jump in your team. And, and and I will say, if we don't win the East, though, to me it is a little bit of a letdown. We need to be ten and two and win the East because we've got to show recruits something. We 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 need to win the East if we want to continue the recruiting momentum we have on the trail right now, and even take it further than where it is right now. We've got to win this year. Yeah, we've that's got why to. I would be ten and two winning the East. I'll be happy with that, giving us a shot at making some type of yeah. impact. Well, even if that ten and two, uh, let's say the ten and two is those two losses are a blowout loss to Florida and Jacksonville, and a blowout loss to Tech on the road. Is that still a good season? No. Beating Auburn on the road, beating Tennessee, beating Notre Dame is that? Losing to Florida, losing to Tech like that would would ruin it. Yeah, because I think at the same time you want to have a realistic high ranking. It's hard for me to say any year that we lose to Tech, it's a good year because yeah, we should I, never, I ever, like ever, that. ever, like ever, to ever lose to them. I would like to go into the SC Championship ranked in the top twelve. Yeah, so I, I I do think it's somewhat circumstance dependent, if that makes any sense. Like, who are those two losses, and and what do those two losses look like if it's a ten and two season? You know, if if we you know, if, if it's 10-2 and two with a loss, another loss to Vanderbilt and then a loss to Missouri at home or a loss to Kentucky at home, eh, eh. Or 10-2 and two with an opening loss to Appalachian State and thrown in there, whew, I don't know. I mean, it's it's an improved season, no doubt, but I don't know if I'd be super satisfied. I, I, I would be happy. I, obviously, even if it's a 10-2 and two with a loss to Appalachian State, that's still better than 7-5, and five, right? Yeah. So it's a good season, but how good of a season would it be is dependent upon the circumstances and who those losses are to. But good question. All right, guys, you really brought it this month with the questions on recruiting and the team stuff. We love uh, having a chance to answer all your questions, so we do appreciate you sending them in. We'll be back next week. We will have, uh, man, we're about to have some football to talk about. I mean, our fall camp right around the corner here, the open practice here not too far away, so It is right around the corner, guys. We always, always appreciate you listening to the show. But for Curtis, I'm Tyler. Thank you. And as always, go dogs.